consider a parable of a negligent and proud manager. President of a company went away for seven weeks and left one of his managers in charge of the whole company over many departments. And he asked, of course, the manager to just make sure everything was upkept and that they kept on buying what they needed to manufacture their products and to make sure every manager was doing things according to protocol. But he left the manager one very specific command to set up a, a big contract with a contractor. And this was going to be a very big and important deal. So the president leaves, comes back after seven weeks, and he asks the manager right away, well, did the, did the big deal go through? And the manager says, well, you know, truth be told, president, well, we, we have had a wonderful seven weeks as you've been gone. We've had more income than any other months of, in this company's history. And I've bought even more equipment so that we can do more things. Uh, all of the managers are very happy. Our employees are excited. I've promised them even a bonus at the end of the year. Okay, the president says, well, that's all fine and good, but did you do that deal that I told you to do? He says, well, you know, I thought it would be best to invest time and money in some other things and Besides, I'm a bit anxious about doing deals like that. I've never done it myself before, though I've seen you do it many times. Of course, the president was very disappointed in this negligent and proud manager who thought he could do things his own way and neglected the one very specific command that the president gave him. I wonder if sometimes the church is a bit like that. God has given us, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, has given us a very specific commission. Are we often sometimes proud, thinking that we know better how to accomplish the work of God's kingdom in this world? Do we sometimes neglect it because we're afraid, we're scared, we're anxious, even though God has given us everything we need by his spirit and in his word to accomplish the task. This morning, we want to look at that very specific commission that Jesus has given us at the end of Matthew. And I want to talk first about some errors regarding our mission and then the main action of our mission and then we'll look at three supporting actions to our mission we see in this text. First of all, some errors about our mission. <clears throat> I think subtly, the church often diverts itself from the main command that we have here in Matthew 28. We get off track on various other things. There are even counter-missiologies that have been put forward that try to explain what the mission, the main priority, the task of the church is. And I want to cover just three of these really quickly that really are, at the end of the day, I believe, false and errant missiologies, though they all have an element of truth in them. The first is something called social transformationism. That's at least what I'm calling it, social transformationism. Uh, a professor at Toronto Baptist Seminary who also has been in missions for many, many years, taught at missions schools. He explains that the prevailing missiology of our day is something he calls missio Dei. Now that's a Latin phrase that means the mission of God. But what are these theologians trying to get across as they speak about Missio Dei. Well, essentially, it's this idea of social transformationism, that there is a mission that God is on, and he's been on it since the very beginning of the Bible. And this is essentially to 
restore all of creation to its original condition, to that creation mandate, to make all of the earth flowing with blessing. Okay, so far, so good, maybe. But as a result, they say that the church is called to participate in God's mission, or rather even simply invited to participate with God in this mission. And that means we get ourselves involved in social uplift and transformation, that we're all about getting rid of oppression and tearing down systems of oppression, that we're about doing good works and relieving the poor, that we might be all about causes of justice, and that really we need to go to the world first to understand what its problems are and then act accordingly as the church to meet those problems and needs. In the end, this ends up being very political. It ends up being, again, focused on social transformation. And I wonder, is this what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20? Is that actually what he says? The next missiology is what I call revivalism. Now, revival is a good thing. It's the extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit of God at different times in history. The Holy Spirit may decide to come in a very powerful way and make mass conversions happen. This has happened in, in a time in the 1700s in the Great Awakening. But then there was the Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s. And along with it came a change in philosophy and theology. Pastors and preachers began to think that they could affect change, mass change in people by things like altar calls and the anxious bench and getting people to make quick decisions for Christ. And so they could count up mass conversions. Now, conversion is a wonderful thing, and I believe that's part of our commission is to preach the gospel in order to find conversion. But this ends up being a false way of thinking about the church's mission as well. Because we think we can produce results by our own means rather than trusting in the Lord for the results. And as we'll see, it's not tied enough to the work of the local church, which is part of our mission. The third thing I want to speak about is reconstructionism. Reconstructionism. Some might call it dominionism or theonomy. This was a movement that began in the last century with a guy named R.J. Rushdoony. And really, it has as its main goal, as its main hope, the idea that all nations one day will be made into theocratic republics. That's its main mission then, is to make nations into Christian nations, theocracies. And it has as its vision that one day the whole earth will be this mass of decentralized theocratic republics. And in order to produce that, they argue that we must apply the law of God to every area of life, first individually, of course, and then our families and our churches, on into society and culture and arts and education and all of these things, politics, until we make Christian nations. Now, the best of them do recognize that this has to happen by heart change, by the preaching of the gospel, by evangelism, but still that end goal, applying all the word of God till societies are remade as theocratic republics. This is actually gaining steam in our culture. People like Doug Wilson, um, Joe Boot, you may have heard of. These fellows, Jeff Durbin, they're all about this reconstructionism. Now, I'm not going to deal with that in detail, but again, I'd ask the question, is that the mission that God has given us in Matthew 28? 
and interpreting that mission with the rest of what we see in the New Testament. I believe it falls short. Ultimately, these are all diversions from the true mission of the church. And so getting into this text now, finally, Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, the setting of this, which I spoke of last week, was, of course, Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the grave. He brought his disciples to this mountain, which would have reminded them, of course, of the times he had spoken to them in Galilee before about what it means to be a disciple. He gives them one last lesson here about disciples, that disciples are to make disciples. That's our main mission. And he includes in 18 there, this truth that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he has a kingdom. And so what are the subjects of his kingdom to be doing on this earth? Well, we see the main action there in verse 19 is make disciples of all nations. That's the main verb there, make disciples. It's one word. Disciple or teach or make disciples of all nations. Now I ask right away, is, is Jesus telling us to do social transformation? No, he's saying make disciples of me. Focus rather on actually personal transformation. Bringing the gospel to people so that they might become learners and followers of Jesus. That's what a disciple is, a learner and a follower. In the first century, you had these rabbis, these teachers who would go around and they would teach pupils. They would teach them. And so these pu pupils would learn. And they would also follow the rabbi's way of life. They would learn from the way he lived. And so they would follow and imitate him. And who are we to make disciples of? Obviously here, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. These disciples who were given this commission were already disciples of Jesus. And they go on and they make disciples of Jesus. As Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, not, not I follow Paul or Cephas or Apollos, but we're to follow Jesus Christ. We're not to make followers of ourselves. We're not to make followers of even John Calvin or John MacArthur, but of Jesus, only Jesus. Matthew 23, verse 8, Jesus says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. That's what we are as disciples. We're brothers, and Jesus is our rabbi, our teacher. Now, how do we actually make disciples of Jesus? That's the question. It, it's not actually given to us in this text how we are to make disciples. But I want to take you to that passage that Nathan read for us, Luke 24. And it's really a parallel passage to this. Jesus is telling his disciples what they're going to be about doing on this earth before he ascends to heaven. And then we'll also look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But first here, Luke 24 and verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, 
to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So they had seen Jesus. They had seen the good news on display right before their eyes. They had seen Jesus die and rise again from the dead. And then he gave them minds to understand the Old Testament scriptures, that they would be able to understand and teach and explain these things. And then he says, really, that what they're to be doing is to go to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and proclaim in his name forgiveness of sins when people repent and turn to Jesus. You see that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Then flip over to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. This is again before Jesus' ascension. He says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, that's the same commission. He's saying, you're my witnesses. You think of what a witness is, even in a courtroom. It's someone who's seen these events take place and they can testify to them. The apostles and we, by extension, are witnesses of Jesus. We know his good news. We know what he's done in his death and resurrection. And we're to testify of those things to all nations. And we see throughout the book of Acts, this is what the apostles do. They proclaim Jesus' name. They proclaim he's Lord and Christ. They preach the good news, the gospel message. And that is how disciples are made. They preach and teach. It's a simple equation. The, the preaching of the word plus a response of faith equals a disciple made. That's what happens throughout the book of Acts. They preach the word. People believe, they repent, they turn to Jesus Christ. And they're made into disciples. And then we'll see those disciples are added to the church and continue being taught. Now, back to Matthew 28, it says to all the nations, or make disciples of all the nations. Now, literally in the Greek, you could translate that disciple all nations. But we know that not every single individual is going to be saved. Sadly, as Jesus says, the way is narrow, the gate is narrow, the, the gate is wide and the way is wide that leads to destruction. Many are those <coughs> who follow that path. The way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. We also see in the book of Acts that Paul was not about building a theocratic republic. Rather, he would go into different cities and towns. He would preach the gospel. People would believe. Some would oppose him. Some would persecute him. He would build up a church. Then he would go on to the next place. That was sufficient. We know from 2 Corinthians 2 as well. It talks about the triumph of Jesus Christ throughout the earth that He's leading us in triumphal procession as we bring the aroma of Christ, as we bring the good news. But some people believe it and some people reject it. To some, it's an aroma of life unto life. To some, from death to death. And this is the pattern even to the end. As Matthew 13 states, the weeds and the wheat grow up together in the world until the harvest the end of the age and the sheep are separated from the goats no we preach the gospel to all nations and then the end will come even Matthew 24 speaks very clearly about this Matthew 24 verse 14 and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed 
throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We even know from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, a difficult chapter, but at least we know from there that even at the very end before Christ returns, there will be opposition, even a final rebellion. As Satan is loosed from his bondage, he's allowed more freedom for a little while. And so we know that people will be ransomed from all nations. And yet, not all nations will become theocratic republics. Now a word just about that word, nations. Ethnos, it really means the people groups of this world. And according to statistics, and you never know how much you can trust them, but there is this thing called the Joshua Project. And it tells us that actually 43% of the world's people groups are still unreached. There's no gospel proclamation to these people groups. That means we have a lot of a task before us. It's an unfinished task, isn't it? Making disciples of all nations. Now, as we tease out this duty we have, this main command, this main mission of making disciples in all the nations, we should note in this text that we have three supporting actions to our mission spoken of here. Verse 19 to 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In the Greek, you would notice there are three participles there. Going, baptizing, and teaching. These are what we call participles of attendant circumstance, really supporting actions to the main action of making disciples. First of all, that first word there, go, or going. Some people argue that this means just as we go, we make disciples. So wherever you find yourself, just be about making disciples. But I think Jesus is saying more than that here. It really is a command to go because, look, if we're going to make disciples of all nations, we need to go to all the nations, don't we? We can't just stay on our couch. We can't just stay in our own little church all the time covering the same ground over and over again as nice as that is and as comfortable as that is and and we're not even to reclaim ground that others have already claimed for Jesus Christ uh, i love paul's way of saying this in the book of second corinthians which we went through last year second corinthians chapter 10 Paul really gives us his mindset when it comes to his mission. Contrary to the false apostles who are all about usurping the influence of others and boasting beyond their area of influence. He says in 2 Corinthians 10.13, But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. See, Paul's desire was just to build up the churches he had planted till they were mature enough that he could go on, that they could be a launching pad to bring the gospel to new places. We see his desire also in Romans chapter 1 verse 5. He says here, 
through whom, that is Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. That was Paul's desire to bring the gospel and the obedience of faith among all the nations. Now, as we speak about this work of going, we know that not every one of us can be a missionary to some other place. And I don't believe that's what what it's calling us to do here. There are some who support the work and there are some who go into new frontiers. Andrew Fuller and William Carey were friends. William Carey went to India. Andrew Fuller stayed in England organizing the the Baptist Missionary Society. He was said to hold the rope while William Carey went down into the well. There needs to be supporters and laborers who actually go. Now we, we do like to be comfortable, don't we? We live in the skip the dishes generation. That means we can order food, even fast food, We could even order something from a convenience store and get it brought to our home. That's how lazy we've become as a society. The skip the dishes generation. Now, will this generation send missionaries? That's the question. Are we going to be focused on this mission that Jesus has given us? We can't do that from our couch. We can't do it just scrolling through Netflix and ordering food online. We need to actually support and raise up laborers who actually go to unreached places. Now, that's the first supporting action there, going, go. The second there is baptizing in the middle of verse 19. Baptizing them, that is, the disciples that are made, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot we could say about baptism. First of all, I want to note that these two last supporting actions show us that this mission is tied to the work of the local church. Really, missions is nothing other but church planting in other places. Because baptism is an initiation into the new covenant community, the local church. Teaching is something that we do in the ministry of the local church. And so this shows that that attitude of revivalism is also wrong. What happens when you make mass conversions you get people to raise a hand or sign a card and then you just let them go. Well, not much discipleship. Perhaps not even baptism into the local church. Our missiology must be tied to the local church. All missionary activity has as its goal the building of healthy churches. Now, baptizing specifically, what does that mean? Well, there are a few words used in the New Testament regarding this action we call baptism. There's baptizo, baptismos, baptisma. There's a root word, bapto, but that's not actually used of baptism specifically as we're speaking of here. But the root meaning of all these words is essentially to dip or immerse or submerge or wash Okay, it was used in the classical Greek period, even of people drowning in water or a ship sinking down into water and perishing, essentially. And so it means to immerse or submerge. And we see this even used in the Old Testament. There's one reference. Sometimes it can be used metaphorically in the book of Isaiah. I believe it's chapter 24. There's this instance where it's used of someone being appalled or overwhelmed. You know, when you're overwhelmed, you're sort of surrounded, submerged with an overwhelming feeling. There's also the instance in 2 Kings 5 of 
Naaman, the Syrian, who has leprosy. And he goes and he washes himself, he dips himself seven times in the Jordan River, and he's made clean. That could very well be the foundation of this idea of baptism. But we see it also at the beginning of the Gospels in the ministry of John. People came out to the Jordan River confessing their sins. It was a baptism of repentance that people recognizing their guilt before God, how they had been unfaithful to him. They were unclean. They came and they confessed their sins. And they were immersed in the Jordan River by John. A symbol of recommitment to God and the washing away of their sins. And we also see Jesus and his disciples beginning to do this. I want you to look just for a moment at John chapter 3 and 4. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Now flip over to chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's really what I want you to see there. Jesus was literally in the Greek, it says this, making disciples and baptizing them. That's exactly the pattern we see in Matthew 28. You make disciples, you preach to them. Jesus was about this. He proclaimed repentance and faith. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, that it was near, and that people should repent and believe the gospel. And then he made disciples. And then he baptized them. We learn here he himself did not baptize, but his disciples were actually doing the action. But that lines up with what we see in Matthew 28. And then with the rest of the New Testament. Again, if you were to look at the book of Acts, you would see that they preach the word. They make disciples. People who receive the word, who believe in the word, who repent they baptize those people into the local church and then they continue to be discipled. That's the pattern over and over and over again. I could show you many references, but maybe we wouldn't get out, <laughs> out of here till uh, two in the afternoon. <clears throat> At any rate, this baptism <clears throat> symbolizes what's already occurred in a disciple that they've been given new life in Jesus Christ. It symbolizes a, a death and a burial and a resurrection, that we've been converted to Christ, that we've been laid in the tomb. Even that action of being overwhelmed by water, submersed, immersed in water. We come into the tomb, we're laid down in it, and then we rise up from the dead with Jesus Christ, to walk in newness of life. And this is why Romans 6 and Colossians 2.12, for instance, can speak of baptism within the matrix of conversion, of regeneration, of the new life in Christ, of forgiveness of sins, because this all occurs at conversion. When the Spirit grants us new life and we repent and believe in Jesus, we're forgiven of all our sins and we're baptized as a symbol of that new life. It is also an initiation into the local church. I'll just show you one reference here, Acts chapter 2. And <clears throat> verse 41. This is after Peter preaches the gospel to these people and exhorts them to repent and be baptized. He says, it says in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then you see in the rest of that passage, they devote themselves to the membership of the local church, to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. This baptism is an initiation into this new covenant community. 
a membership, the body of Christ. So baptism here ties this whole commission to the local church. And note in Matthew 28 here, it's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This means we do this probably in the authority of the triune God, but also that that person who's baptized is then identified with the triune God. They know God as their Father. They know Jesus Christ as their Redeemer and Savior. And they know the Holy Spirit's work in their heart. And so they're dedicated to the triune God. This is one of the most explicit and clear statements of the Trinity we have in the New Testament. There's one name, singular, there. Signifying one God, one Lord, one name. But it's a triune name, three persons. The name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See that God is one God in three persons. And this is the God we are identified with in baptism. Now moving on to that third supporting action. In verse 20 it says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this, we see again, is really a function of local churches. This mission is tied to church planting. Because especially elders, and in the early church, it was apostles who began giving over this mantle to elders that they raised up in the churches. They were to be about teaching throughout the book of Acts. If, if you even sit down and read the book of Acts, count the number of times it says teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching. Really, the book of Acts is all about the progress of the word of God. This is what we do as disciples, as pastors, even elders. First Timothy 3 says that elders, overseers are to be able to teach. That's because they lead the church in this teaching action, this further discipling, teaching how to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. 2 Timothy 2.2 is a very important command Paul gave to Timothy, who was a pastor raising up other pastors. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is a command to raise up faithful, qualified men to continue the teaching ministry of the church. That's part of what we're to do as church. We're to be like a, a seminary, raising up laborers, raising up qualified men who can teach others. But this is also, this teaching ministry is something that every member really ought to be engaged in. Colossians 3.16 tells us that we're to have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You think of Titus 2, speaks of older women teaching what is good and so training the younger women to love their children and husbands. We're to teach one another in the church. And there's an interesting passage in Hebrews chapter 5 that we've been looking at in prayer meeting lately. Hebrews 5 verse 11 to 14 notes that it's not good if we as disciples stay at a place where we are not able to teach others. You know, if you've been sitting in a church for several years and you're not able to pass on the faith to others and disciple others, teach them, there's actually a problem. It says here in Hebrews 5:11, about this, we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, 
since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, he makes it clear in the next chapter, he, doesn't, he hasn't lost hope in these people. He says, I, I feel sure of better things for you. I, I don't believe you're going to go away into apostasy, but you need to go on to maturity. You need to be able to understand all these basic things and move on to solid food so that you would be able to pass that on to others also and to teach them all that Jesus has commanded. Now that's a comprehensive statement, isn't it? We're to observe everything that he's ordered us to do. And I think very particularly, probably we should focus then on Jesus' teachings we have in the Gospels. But this also includes all of Scripture as it's interpreted in light of Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the apostles. And so this is really all of Scripture applied to all of life. Here is one area where I think the Reconstructionists are onto something. They want to apply all of God's word to all of life. That's a good thing. That's part of our command here from Jesus Christ. We need to apply the word of God and Jesus' teaching to every aspect, leaving nothing outside the sphere of his lordship. Again, all authority has been given to him. If we call him Lord, Lord, why do we not do the things he's commanded us? We need to truly follow him and not just give lip service to Jesus Christ. We need every aspect of life to come under his teaching. So here we see all three of those supporting commands. To that main command of making disciples. We should note here again at the very end, Jesus attends the blessing of his very own presence to us as we seek to do this mission. I am with you literally, literally all the days to the end of the age. Friends, we're in the present evil age. And our task is the same throughout that whole age. And the age to come begins when Jesus returns. I want to show this to you very quickly from Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, we have the parable of the weeds explained in verse 36 to 43, and it says this, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. And that's literally the same exact words he uses in Matthew 28. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. There's a time when Jesus is coming back. This is the end of the age. He will return and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And all those who are disobedient to the gospel call will be thrown out into the lake of fire. But the righteous will shine like the sun in that kingdom. Jesus then promises to be with us through this whole present age. Until he returns. 
You think of the colonialists, say for the great British Empire. This great empire sent out many of their citizens into new lands, new frontiers. You think of the people who even explored Canada. Brave, brave men traversing immense territory. And they were sent out by this great and powerful empire. Well, friends, we serve the greatest and most powerful empire, a righteous empire. All those empires of the past were unjust in ways, but Jesus is the truly just and holy King of Kings. And the great kingdom of heaven is pushing us into new frontiers. And what we need is brave disciples to take the gospel to lands beyond us, knowing that he is there empowering us for that task. Friends, as we close, I want to just say, if you are not a disciple here this morning, if you haven't repented and believed in Jesus Christ, the call goes out to you again. Jesus has died for our sins. He's been risen from the grave. He's ascended to heaven. He's ruling and reigning. He offers to you the blessing of forgiveness of all of your sins. When you come to him, when you turn from your wickedness and make him truly the Lord of your heart, you are to repent and be baptized, added to his church, and continue to be taught everything that Jesus has commanded. And friends, for us who are Christians already, disciples already, we need to be about personal discipleship. Each one of us should ask periodically, where am I at in my discipleship? Am I mature in the faith yet? Would I be able to pass my faith on to others? Is my way of life replicable? Do I imitate Christ? And could someone imitate me and learn something about following Jesus? And if we're not there yet, well, why not? Are you seeking more discipleship from the church? Are you attending to the teaching ministries of our elders? Are you devoting yourself to the fellowship? Are you asking someone to disciple you? There are many in our church, I'm sure, who would be delighted to take a disciple along and meet with them weekly. That's something we can do. And friends, if you are at that level of maturity, are you making other disciples? Are you helping those around you? It could be simple as meeting someone for coffee once a week and reading through one of the Gospels together, passing on what you know about Jesus Christ and following him, having them over into your home so that they can see the way you interact with your family, with your wife and your children. We need to be about personal discipleship. And of course, all the various ministries of our church are put in place to continue that teaching ministry, prayer meeting, men's and women's groups, Sunday school, evangelism when we start that up. All of these ministries are designed to continue teaching all of us how to observe everything Jesus has commanded. And also, friends, we need to be about mission, locally, regionally, internationally. We need to be about mobilizing for missions. There is still much evangelism to do in our very own town. There's people who know nothing really about Jesus Christ in our city. Are we reaching them? Even all nations are streaming to us in a unique way. There are many minority groups we can be reaching out to from different countries, maybe different religions. We need to be thinking about that. There may be towns close by that need a gospel preaching church, but friends, ultimately, those unreached places, are we thinking about India? Just vast amounts of unreached people groups in one single country there. Countries like Turkey that are just immensely permeated with Islam. We need to be thinking and, and praying and supporting those that we've already supported. 
financially and in prayer, but also that missionaries would be raised up even from this place, even from our very own church, even our very own children. Are we praying for that? Acts 13, I want to go to for one moment, just to make this point, that we need to continue in prayer, even in fasting, praying for this purpose of missions, sending out people from our midst as we worship and fast and pray. Acts 13, 1 to 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now that was a mature church with many teachers in it because Paul and Barnabas had been there preaching and teaching already for a long time. That's the vision of a, a mature church. The church that we want to build here at Coram Deo, that there would be teachers that as we worship, that as we pray, that as we fast, we would send people out to more unreached peoples. Let's pray in light of that. Father, we're humbled when we think of this great task you've given before us, Lord. We don't want to be unfaithful, Lord. We don't want to be negligent. We don't want to be proud and thinking of our own plans and schemes, Lord. We want to just do what you've commanded us. Lord, we pray you would shape our thinking according to this main primary task of your church. Lord, that we would be mature, Lord, in ourselves. That we would be people of prayer. Lord, that we would see teachers raised up in our midst, Lord, that we would baptize more disciples into our church, but also send out mature disciples, faithful men into unreached places. Lord, we pray and ask the Holy Spirit's guidance for this, even in the days ahead, Lord. We ask based on your Holy Son, Jesus. Amen.